This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Our reading comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahirath, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pi-Hiharath in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen, And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, 
that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, all of the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Uh, As we get started, I just need to warn you, this sermon is fairly theological. I didn't just say it's fairly theoretical and then potentially boring. I said it's fairly theological, and I think actually you're going to find it quite interesting. This is the infamous and fascinating uh, crossing of the Red Sea. When I say that the sermon is going to be fairly theological, what I mean is this, the application of this passage to our lives is fairly theological. Let me uh, go further in explaining what I mean. The rest of the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, they, 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 they see the, the historic event captured in Exodus 14. They, they see it as a paradigm and as a pattern and as a picture of God's salvation for all of his people at all times, okay? So if you look at how Moses uses the language of salvation in our text, verse 13, see the salvation or the victory of the Lord, verse 30, thus the Lord saved or delivered Israel uh, that day. And so when the rest of the Bible looks back on Exodus and, and on the crossing of the Red Sea, the Bible does not draw application like this. What to do when you find yourself at the sea with a large army behind you? Uh, what to do if God gives you a magical staff for your birthday. Although that would be cool. This is not the passage where we learn about that. Uh, This text, uh, the rest of the Bible doesn't look back on Exodus 14 and say, what to do if you come to a body of water and you need to cross without a boat? Okay, so the rest of the Bible... Some 25 times in the Old Testament, 1 Corinthians 10, the book of Galatians, Jesus in John 10, 1 Corinthians 10, Hebrews 3, Hebrews 6, I could go on and on. The Bible looks back on Exodus 14 and it thinks about it this way. What happened to Israel at the Red Sea is a picture of what happened to you when God saved you. So if you're a believer... In Jesus, it's not understand this passage so that one day you can apply it in the future when you're in the Egyptian Delta without a boat or however we might spiritualize that. But it's this, if you're a believer, the pattern of this story was applied to you in the past by God when he saved you, when he took you from death to life, when he brought you out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of light. This is a picture of what he did. In other words, if you're a believer, the Red Sea is not in front of you, it's behind you. You don't apply the crossing of the Red Sea to your life, the Red Sea was applied to your life. Further, if you're investigating Christianity, and I know that there are several of you in that camp who are here today, this story 
may actually be the picture that you need to see in order to understand what God is doing to you and for you right now as he graciously saves you, okay? So now I understand that might've been confusing. Let me try and say it simply. This passage, Exodus 14, as a story, is a picture, a pattern, a paradigm for what the Bible means when it says that God is a God of salvation. It's a picture of what the Bible means when it says that God saved us. So theologically, we're gonna study our own conversion through the paradigm of the Red Sea, okay? And as we study our own conversion through the paradigm of the story, we're gonna see a sovereign God who saves, faithless men being saved, and the faithful God-man Savior, okay? First, there's too much to be said here. I cannot say it all, but think about the sovereign God who saves. If you have your worship folders, uh, the text is printed for you. You're gonna want it. We're gonna jump around a lot. In, in this story, God does everything necessary to take his people from one side to the other side of the sea. God does everything necessary to save his people, deliver his people from, give them victory over the enemy. God does everything necessary to take his people from slavery and imminent death to freedom and life. Look at all the spheres in which God exercises authority and control in saving his people. First, God, through the fire cloud pillar, leads his people into the seas crescent and essentially traps them there. That was the sermon last time. You'll have to listen to that on the podcast. Second, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. God makes Pharaoh stubborn so that Pharaoh will chase the Israelites and and so that Pharaoh will fall a hook, line, and sinker for God's trap. Verse five, on a human level, Pharaoh has changed his mind. But verse four, verse eight, the text couldn't be more clear. What was Pharaoh's choosing God was sovereign over. So if you've been with us for a while, if you're familiar with the story, you know that in chapter 12, Pharaoh finally honored Moses' request to to let the people go uh, into the wilderness for what he thought was a three-day journey uh, to worship God. Uh, But verse 5, he is told that the people have fled. Also, undoubtedly, uh, Pharaoh has heard of work stoppages uh, throughout his kingdom now that his his carpenters and his brick makers and his brick masons uh, have fled. And and he asks himself, why do we let them go from serving us? And, And Pharaoh, instead of remembering the obvious answer to why, instead of remembering the 10 plagues, instead of acting in accordance with God's word and God's power, it says God made him hard hearted, stubborn, stupid. God made Pharaoh think he could go after the Israelites and catch them. And so Pharaoh himself, his civilian retinue, uh, 600 first-rate chariots, at least that many ordinary chariots, with at least three soldiers and officers in each chariot, they head out in hot, stubborn pursuit. Further, verse 17, God makes at least 3,000 Egyptian soldiers and officers stupid. He hardens their hearts and he has them race into the sea. He has them race into the sea so that he will get glory over them and they will die a just death that they deserve for the horrific sins they chose to commit against God's people. Keep in mind, God is orchestrating this and he is using all of this to make sure his people get across the sea. 
Next, third, God exercises authority and control over the normal course of nature, is what uh, it says in verse uh, 27, in order to get his people out of slavery. Verses 21 and 22. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So look at the power of God over the normal course of nature. The the Hebrew word for sea in verse 21, for example, is never used for swamp or some sort of mud flat in the Old Testament. It's always a large body of water. The word for wall, uh, verse 22, verse 29, it's 133 times found in the Old Testament, and every time, without exception, it speaks of a massively large city wall, which would have been at least 20 feet high. He displays his authority and his control over what we would think of as the ordinary patterns of nature. Finally, God does everything necessary to save his people by exercising authority and control over the Israelites themselves. And, and I, don't, I don't know how to say it other than to say he, he exercises this control by pushing them across the sea. I'm going to pick up in verse 19 in a second. But to this point, God has been in front of the Israelites in, in the fire cloud pillar. God has led them to the edge of the sea. They look up, verse 10, and they freak out. We'll talk more about that in a second. They essentially declare their allegiance to Egypt in their grumbling to Moses. And what does God do? What does God say? Okie dokie, it's your choice. If you don't want to follow me to freedom, that's totally fine. It's just an offer. Heavens no. Verses 19 and 20, this is God's response to their unbelief. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night with one coming, uh, with one, without one coming near the other all night. So, so the Hebrew of the, the first part of verse 20 is really hard to translate. But most of the commentators think that the point is something like this, that that throughout the night, God in the pillar uh, gave darkness to the the Egyptians, but he gave light to the Israelites so that they could prepare themselves to cross the sea. But the Hebrew in the second part of verse 20 is simple. Everybody translates it like this. So neither went near the other all night. It does not say so that the Egyptians could not get the Israelites. That's true. It also says the Israelites couldn't go back to the Egyptians. Point being, they freaked. They voiced a desire to return to Egypt. God did not let them. God's like, all right, you're freaking out. I'm not only going to save you from the Egyptians, I'm going to save you from you. I'm not just going to protect you from the Egyptians, I'm going to protect you from you. And then Moses stretches out his hand. The sea is divided and God does not go back in front of them and invite them to follow. He just starts moving forward. Fire is coming at the Israelites. Their only option is to go through the sea on dry ground. And I think, as one commentator said, some were walking through going, this is awesome. 
look at what God is doing. High five, baby. And, and the wife's like biting her fingernails. Uh, she's in need. Well, let's do it the other way. The wife's like, high five, baby. And the husband is biting his fingernails and he's in need of his Depends undergarment. And he is saying over and over and over, we're gonna die. We're gonna die. We're gonna die. And both are taken to the other side by God. So let's get our bearings. As we study our conversion, our spiritual birth through the paradigm of the story, we see a sovereign God who does everything necessary to save. James says it like this, of his own will or desire, God begat us. He birthed us by the word of truth. John says it like this, children of God are born, not of the will or desire of man, but of the will or desire of God. What does it mean when we say that God is sovereign over salvation? Just this, he exercises authority and control over every realm in order to do everything necessary to save his people, a people that we're about to see in a moment that who can do nothing to save themselves. That's all we mean. Second, as you study and as I study our spiritual conversion from death to life through the paradigm of this Red Sea crossing, we not only see a sovereign God who saves, but we see faithless men, humanity, mankind being saved. Okay, so look at the picture painted of the Israelites in Exodus 14. This actually should make you quite confident. First, the Israelites, the people being saved, are fickle. They're wishy-washy. Verse 8, they're described as going out defiantly. So as they leave Egypt, it literally says in the Hebrew, they have their hand high, like in victory, okay? Heads up, uh, uh, confident, maybe even proud, okay? Verse 10, they see the Egyptian army marching towards them. They fear greatly. Second, the, the Israelites become instantly bitter, when things become difficult, they, they throw a temper tantrum as soon as their circumstances look dangerous at all. Verse 11, they're speaking to God through Moses. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? And this is when the parent of the middle schooler wants to pop them right upside the head. But, but watch how the picture of the Israelites, it actually gets worse. Not just fickle, not just bitter, pathological and delusional. Verse 12, is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Here's the problem. They never actually said that in Egypt. In fact, when they heard that God had heard their cry and could see their misery, and when they heard that God had come near to deliver them, they rejoiced greatly. Our story, verse 8, says they were leaving Egypt defiantly. But even more than that, they're hard-hearted, they're stubborn, and they're close-minded to God's salvation. Verse 12c, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. They see two options. They could serve the Egyptians or they could die in the wilderness following God. They see two options. Option one, the good old days of serving the Egyptians where our infant boys were thrown into the Nile where our husbands were shipped off uh, to distant places in slavery, uh, where they were cruelly treated and brutally beaten. Option two, following Yahweh, which they conclude will end in death here in the wilderness. They don't have an ounce of faith in God at this point. In fact, they have said, we would like to side with the Egyptians. It would have been better 
in Egypt. Now, you would think that they would have at least imagined a third option. Well, God did just perform 11 signs and 10 plagues. We, we do have all this plunder from the Egyptians. God did just tell us that he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart and he was going to get glory over him. We could have the good old days in Egypt. We could die in the wilderness. Or maybe God has a 12th, a 12th sign up his sleeve. So, pause button. If you're new to the gospel... If you're new to the Bible, if you're new to Christianity, I am describing the people that God sets his affections upon. I am describing the people God loves. These are the people that God saves and redeems and chooses to spend a blessed eternity with. God does not save the nice, upright, morally good almost their people. He saves by utter grace alone. He saves the fickle, the bitter, the delusional, and the stubborn. He doesn't give life to the sick. He gives life to the dead. He doesn't save the almost there who need a boost. He saves those who aren't even close, who need everything. These are the faithless men, women, mankind, God saves. Keep going. Let's watch God save these faithless folks. Verse 13. And he doesn't say, come on, guys. I'd really like to save you, you cute little thing. Schmoopsie poopsie. Uh, would you please put some faith in me? I'd like to convert you. It'd be swell if you'd let me. So Moses, as God's representative, says this. It's so terse, it is so blunt in the Hebrew. Fear not. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you. Look at the human non-participation in the divine salvation. Look at the human non-participation in the divine salvation. Verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. And then two words, literally from the Hebrew, shut up. When the Israelites want to go back to the Egyptians, God does not say, and I really do mean this theologically, and I mean this literally. When they want to go back to the Egyptians, he does not say, the hell with you. He says, hell, period, no, period. Not going to happen. I meant that theologically and literally. Can we take that out of the tape? My mom would be so offended. Verse 19, this is him saying, uh-uh. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud, God, moved from before them and stood behind them so that the one could not come near the other all night. This is what the Bible calls grace. When we were dead, he made us alive. When we were his stated enemy, he befriended us. He liked us. When we believed that slavery was more attractive, he did not let us choose it, but he compelled us into life. I once heard an older pastor illustrate it this way. He was trained as a lifeguard in his teens, and I don't know if they still do this or not, but it sounds like a great way of rescuing someone who's freaking and flailing and essentially drowning themselves in the deep end. He said, you try and jump on top of them, 
If possible, you punch them as hard as you can in the forehead. Once stunned, you move behind them, wrap your arm around their neck, and move them into life. Ordinarily, being jumped on, punched, strangled by the neck is generally not a good thing unless you're killing yourself. And then it's called grace, kindness, mercy, and love. And you say, but Ted, what about faith? Good question, by the way. Thanks for bringing it up. You guys ask great questions. I I know that faith and belief and trust, I know it's such a big deal in the Bible. Well, let's see. Let's see what our text, let's see what our picture, let's see what our paradigm has to say about that. Verse 30 So when does faith come into existence and how does it come about? Uh, Is faith something that happens before God saves you or after God saves you? Is faith something that you have before God brings you to life or after God brings you to life? Verse 30, thus, um, that's how the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So, as a result, the people feared the Lord. And the people believed, faithed, trusted in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Faith is not a reasoned walk across water. Faith is seeing God taking you from death to life in spite of yourself and trusting him for it. Faith doesn't lead to seeing. Faith follows seeing. Faith is not so much God saying, I can do this, but you have to believe. It's this. Did you see what I just did for you? Now trust me. Lastly, this morning, as we think about our own conversion, our our own crossing of the sea uh, through this story, we not only see a sovereign God saving faithless men, we see a faithful God-man Savior making the salvation possible. All right, first, uh, notice how clearly the text is presenting Moses as a mediator between God and his people, as Moses is operating as one who identifies with both God and man. Moses represents God to the people, and he, he represents uh, the people to God. So look, in verse 10, the people, upon seeing the Egyptians, they cried out to the Lord. Then verse 11, they said to Moses. In other words, they cried out to the Lord, and this is how they did it. They spoke to Moses. So were they crying out to God, or were they crying out to Moses? Yes. In verse 17, the Lord commanded Moses to divide the sea. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. He, he commands Moses to divide the sea. Verse 21, we read that Moses indeed stretched out his hand over the sea and it says the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind and the waters were divided. So who divided the sea? God or Moses? Yes, Verse 26 speaks to the same reality when the waters return to their normal course. Verse 31 literally reads, Israel saw the great hand that the Lord used against the Egyptian. Now whose hand did the Lord use? Of course, ultimately the answer is it was God's hand. It was God's power. But it was Moses' hand, verse 26, that was stretched out over the sea. That's why the story ends this way in verse 31. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord, and they believed in his servant, Moses. So Moses' role in the story is clearly that of mediator, intermediary, go-between. Access to God, 
access to the people. And if you read Exodus, you will see that this is Moses's most brilliant moment. This is either his John Wayne moment or his Denzel Washington moment, depending on how old you are, okay? He is faithful, he's obedient, he's truthful, he's heroic, he's steadfast, he's brave. Verse 13, fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you. Just shut up. I can actually see John Wayne saying that. Or Denzel Washington. So in the story of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea, again, which the Bible says is a paradigm on your conversion, you have a faithful, dare I say, perfect Moses behaving as a mediator between God and man. But look at this peculiar and shocking interchange between God and Moses in verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me, singular? Now, it's peculiar and shocking because Moses didn't cry. The people cried, verse 10. Bitterness, delusion, rebellion, unbelief, and Moses is rebuked for it. As God's people are being saved by sheer grace, In the story, the epitome of faithfulness, the perfect mediator, if you will, the one between God and man is rebuked and called out for a sin he did not commit, making the salvation of the people possible. Sound like anything we talk about every week? I hope so. Is a picture of, this points to, this foreshadows Jesus Christ in our salvation. Jesus is the ultimate Moses. Moses was not perfect in all of his life. He, he foreshadows Christ, the ultimate deliverer. Christ was perfect. He was faithful. He was brave. He was heroic. He was beautiful his entire life. And Exodus 14 is saying as a paradigm, as a pattern, as a picture In order for God to save sinful people by sheer grace, he has to first rebuke another, a righteous other, in their place for their sin. God cannot simply overlook and simply ignore sin. He he cannot look at our fickleness and our delusional thinking and our bitterness and our stubborn rebellion and say, it's okay. He, He, in fact, had to punish Jesus, the perfect and ultimate mediator in our place so that we can be treated as if and loved as if we had been perfect, obedient, heroic, honest, beautiful our whole lives. We were taken from death to life because the one who lived a beautiful life was taken to death for us. We passed through the sea on dry ground because Jesus was drowned in the wrath of the Father. And God is saying to you and to me, do you see what I just did for you? Now trust me. In closing, I had said this was gonna be a fairly theological sermon. And what I meant by that is this is not so much a passage that you apply to the future, but you understand that this was a passage applied to you. We're gonna see next week that the book of Exodus is actually gonna teach us to add to awe, fear, and faith, worship and dancing. May we see that now. Let's pray. Jesus, we have made your gospel so small and so thin. We have made your love so weak. We have made your work for us 
microscopic compared to what you have actually done for us. We thank you, Jesus, that you love people like us. We thank you that you love your enemy. You love the rebellious. You love the the ones who can do nothing for themselves. We thank you that you are most glorified forever by not helping nice people, but by rescuing the really rotten people. I personally thank you that this is your wisdom, although it looks like foolishness to the world. This is your strength although it looks like weakness to the world. This is your riches, although it looks like poverty to the world. May we come to the end of our rope and find ourselves fully dependent upon you. And may we find you sufficient in that place. And may we worship you forever. In your name we pray. Amen.